Welcome back to Canna Week, brought to you by New Frontier Data, where we deliver the week's top headlines in cannabis and hear experts weigh in on the impact these stories are having on the industry. I'm your host, Heather Wickline. So we are in 2021. It's good to be back. This year seems to have a lot of great things in store for cannabis. And today we're going to dive into a few of those things on the horizon. Today, joining us, we have the co-leader of the FTI Consulting Cannabis Practice. She oversees cannabis-focused due diligence, anti-money laundering, compliance, fraud, supply chain issues, and cyber threats. Please welcome Ms. Elaine Carey. Thank you. And we also had the pleasure of working with FTI recently as they sponsored our uh, special election 2020 report. So it was great to have you guys back and hear your insights. Our next guest is our in-house expert. He leads our amazing research team. Please welcome back Chief Knowledge Officer, Mr. John Kagia. Delighted to be back, Heather. Thank you. Well, we have a lot to cover, so we're going to dive right in. MG Magazine reported new cannabis data highlights the industry's great year and bright future. With the year 2020 that was and 2021, how it has already started out, that seems very optimistic and I like it. (laughs) The cannabis industry, so we know it's they have a history of surviving challenging market conditions. 2020 was no exception. And despite numerous hardships, last year was especially noteworthy for the cannabis industry. Uh, New Frontier data found 42% of cannabis consumers increased their rate of usage as 2020 progressed. Not shocking, as we were all stuck at home. Uh, At the same time, edibles surpassed joints as consumer favorites, form of cannabis. Elaine, I wanted to get your take. With vaccines being administered and potential light at the end of the tunnel of going back to normal, do you expect these changes or trends will continue in 2021? I think they absolutely will continue, and I think the industry will continue to grow as it always has in recent years by leaps and bounds. If anything, oddly enough, COVID might have been a great thing for the industry. It not only increased consumer adoption and participation, but frankly, it it encouraged the industry, sometimes through fairly dire means, to grow up, professionalize, really get a hand on the business side of it, which is good for the industry. Obviously, some people lost out on that. That will continue at a rapid pace. And you will see, I think, not only the continued growth in consumers, I think you'll definitely see a a continued growth in edibles and things and people beginning to go away from smoking. Uh, But I also think you'll see a growth, most importantly, of institutional investors coming into the industry, as opposed to the sort of, you know, exorbitant rates that people were paying for for money uh, and debt last at the end of last year. And you will see um, we'll see some movement in Washington that will be encouraging the industry. It won't be as fast as anybody expected, but I think we'll see some form of safe banking. Won't be close to what anybody wants necessarily, but it'll be enough that it will encourage big money to stay in the industry, come into the industry, and it will encourage other uh, banks, et cetera, to come in. I mean, I I think the mainstreaming of cannabis is just moving so fast. The elections prove that. I mean, with one out of every three people now able to buy cannabis, you know, it's for me, it's like the gay marriage issue. It's over. It, Washington's um, behind the beat here. Everybody else has moved on. They're going, you're still arguing about that? What's wrong with you? Yeah, it's not nearly as taboo as it was, you know, even no, I mean, five years ago. Heavens, look at the sales in a place like Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just the discussion's over. It's just now, how do we do this? John, what's your take on that? 
I, I entirely agree with everything Elaine has just said. Um, you know, that there's been such a kind of multi-sectoral uh, tailwind driving this industry um, that I think the positioning coming into 2021 is very, very strong. So struck a couple of days you had a couple of days ago you had Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York, uh, reaffirming his intention to legalize cannabis this year. Um, obviously, the passage of adult use in New Jersey has set off this kind of domino reaction on the East Coast. And while we know from um, you know whether it's Pennsylvania, New York, uh, Connecticut as being uh, the state uh, or Virginia that have been. Uh, already intentional in their declarations about legalization, we know now this is a conversation that's happening all along the eastern seaboard. Um, uh, second, you know, the, the even though we ha we have seen the vaccine rollout begin, um, it, it's going to be a really long time, if ever, that we return to something close to what life used to be. Um, some of these new work from home policies are going to be affected uh, on a permanent or near permanent basis. There's a lot of people who've, who've made substantial changes to the way they live um, now that they've uh, now that we have, broadly speaking, the national infrastructure to support um, um, our work from home. And I think that's that's going to stimulate a much a very different approach, very different relationship uh, to cannabis, just based on the fact that people there are going to be a lot more people who are not going to be spending hours commuting to and from work. Um, and and have had the ability or the flexibility to consume cannabis at times and in places that they may, might not have had uh, pre-COVID. Um, third, and, and this is an interesting kind of point around innovation that that we're interesting to, interested in seeing how it plays out uh, in the year ahead. So one tranche is innovation around the infused product environment, something that we've been talking about for a while. Um, but as consumers have seen this extraordinary innovation around infused products. And now you have not only very quote unquote effective products um, in terms of how quickly they, uh, the onset happens and, and um, how quickly consumers can feel this effect. You're no longer dealing with you know, 90 minutes, two hour delays to onset. You, you're now seeing companies pushing against the 10 minute barrier mark. But second, you just have really high quality products. Like these products that consumers say taste amazing and happen to be cannabis infused. And I think that's going to continue to push this, this interest in and, and shift away from uh, combustibles as a primary form of ingestion or as a singular form of ingestion that we used to see in unregulated markets. But a second part of innovation that, that we think is compelling is one of the things the pandemic did with the um, permission for dispensaries to offer delivery services, to offer curbside pickup, is that it broke the, the relationship that the buyer had with a bud tender. So bud tenders have played a critical role in shaping consumer purchases, consumer product awareness, and it's forced both brands and retailers to now have to think about if people aren't going to be coming into the store, and even if they're coming to the store and they're not spending as much time kind of interacting with the bud tender, asking those questions, how do we engage, kind of communicate, uh, and build relationships and loyalty with our consumers who may not be coming to the stores anymore. And while these are questions that the rest of the consumer economy has been asking for years, um, I think it, COVID has really challenged companies to think more dif uh, to think differently and much more aggressively about this idea of virtually or, or digitally based kind of consumer engagement. And that's really important for the industry. It's something that's long overdue. Um, and I think we're seeing that starting to manifest as, as kind of uh, canvases embracing tech uh, and the opportunities tech presents in a new way.
John, do you think as far as the relationship with bud tenders, is it more for flour or do you feel like it was it's for edibles and other uh, ingestibles? So bud tenders played a really important role uh, across the entire product spectrum. So, you know, depending on what the consumer came in saying that they were looking for, um, then the bud tender had a lot of influence in, in saying, you know, on the flower side, here's what I'd recommend. Uh, on the kind of value-added product side, these are, you know, the two, three brands that we think are going to meet your need. Uh, and in, in the retail, the more mature retail environments, like in California, there's some, uh, and in Oregon, I mean, there's some butt tenders who, based on the depth of knowledge of the products, and you know, they were really effective, almost as being sommeliers and guiding the consumer to to an elevated experience. And so, for the particularly for the newer, less well-informed consumer who may not necessarily want to spend hours in a dispensary uh, talking to somebody. You know, how do you give them the same level of service, the same level of information, if you're losing that opportunity to engage them on an inter- interpersonal basis? Um, I, there's a lot of uh, retailers who I think had done a really good job in um, training their bud tenders to deliver that exemplary service, but had not done something similar in the digital realm. And I think COVID is now forcing that to happen. Um, and what makes it more challenging is the fact that a lot of these uh, or, or that brands aren't able to market on conventional social media, you know, on Facebook, on Google, uh, because of the restrictions around cannabis. So how do you leverage uh, non-conventional tech platforms uh, to, to deliver a um, superlative online experience uh, that replicates what a lot of these brands have invested a lot of um, energy toward in the in-store experience? That's interesting. I just wonder, I was, uh, I think I was talking on another episode that you weren't on, John, but we were talking about whether or not it's almost like when you get stuff delivered online, whether it's packaged, you don't care if it's delivered by Amazon, but you want to shop for your own produce and Mm -hmm. kind of be in the store and see it and feel it and smell it and everything else. And I wondered if that was something similar to an edible to a flower, you know, if you kind of wanted to get in there and actually see it. The thing about COVID though is that we a lot of people have gotten so used to shopping online for everything that before they exactly. would have considered. So it's like, why not? You know, what, yeah. what's the difference? Particularly if you've got, uh, you know, if the delivery mechanism is such that you know you try it once, you don't like it, you can re- maybe not necessarily return it, but you get a credit for something different uh, and can have a discussion. But yeah, it does require to jump through some more hoops. But you know, brands will. You know, I think one of the things that you'll see with companies now, though, they would never admit it on a podcast like this. Um, You know, do you want to rush towards legalization federally? Not really. Do you want to build your brand now and make it really strong before that legalization comes into into effect? Yes, you do. Because brands brands are are really beginning to count. It's not just having cannabis. It's your brand, your specialty, your, that's why you see celebrities and sports stars and all these sort of other people helping the people brand it. It's very important, especially when it's so difficult to market it in that sense. Yeah, especially recently with uh, there's Snoop and Martha Stewart and <laughs> so many people, so many um, you know celebs coming into the market. Aline, you had touched on Oklahoma um, a little bit, but um, as far as their medical market and their lax regulations, it's really allowed them to, like we said, achieve these high patient saturations. Do you think that other medical use markets will be able to replicate this kind of Oklahoma success in 2021? I, they certainly could, but as we've seen, you know, each state has its own peculiar approach to doing this. And even though, yeah. you know, we just had more states, you know, the one thing we uh, found out from the uh, election in November was the one thing Americans agree on is cannabis. 
because it's the only thing that passed overwhelmingly. Uh, I think it's, you know, it always takes a while. It takes at least a year or something for these things to kick in. Uh, I think so, so each state will be different and what they how they copy other states. Uh, but I think we'll see a lot more, a lot more than be more like Oklahoma. Again, I go back to the fact that um, you know you have towns and cities and counties, not to mention states, that are hurting for revenues. If right. they can get more tax dollars, let's not make this hard, folks. Let's let people in the game and make them happy in more ways than one, uh, because it's good financially. And that's you know when you look at the you know John, you mentioned the East Coast. You know, yeah, Cuomo is doing this, but he's not wholeheartedly doing it. But what else can you do when you've got New Jersey? Is he going to let all those tax dollars go to New Jersey? That would seem really stupid. Same yeah. thing, you know, Pennsylvania, uh, you know, Philadelphia, Delaware, they're all too close. You can just go to New Jersey. You see it time and time again. So it's a matter of um, you, you've got to fill uh, public coffers that are really hurting because regular tax revenues are down. So it's a good way to do it. Plus, it certainly appeals to a different, you know, a wider swath of people than they ever thought it would before. So you've got not only taxes coming in, but you've got jobs. So it's it's a no. It it's actually stupid not to do it. Yeah. At this point, if you're if you're a politician, if you're a Cuomo, if you're a whatever, you know, you're against this because we're going to have tax dollars and people want it, and you're saying no. And, and the consumer is going to be spending that money anyway. So yeah, you know, exactly. <laughs> and it gets people off the black market, which could cause health problems. And the last thing they need is more people in the hospital. Great, great point. I wanted to pick up on something that Elaine said about Oklahoma, which which I think is still too early to tell, given that that market is still on a very strong upward trajectory. Um, but but. I completely agree that it's going to be very strong revenue for uh, the state and the local jurisdictions in that market. It's going to be a great environment for consumers because they're going to be spoiled for choice. Um, I, I do have a question mark about um, what's going to happen on the business side, because part of the problem with hypersaturation is that it gets to a point where um, you know some of these stakeholders are going to be flushed out of the market. There's going to be too many suppliers and, and uh, uh, to serve the market in a stable way. So, so just the one caution about the kind of following Oklahoma's model from a business operation standpoint is um, when you have that many licensees um, kind of all rushing to open stores and, and kind of be first out of the gate, um, part of the real risk is, you know, how sustainable that becomes over the medium term. Um, and so there's, there's a risk that on the business side, some of that, that, that may just be kind of good money that ends up getting uh, lost as, as the competitive market really hit, heats up. Um, so great for governments, great for the consumers, uh, but for the businesses, be very aware of what you're getting yourself into because it's going to be a, a market fraught with very intense competition. And even though the market's getting, you know, is getting hotter, and there are more people coming into it. Don't forget that there still is a washout of many companies that are either getting, are they're either just going broke, or yep. they're getting acquired, and not just Oklahoma but other places. That that will continue. There will be some large victors, but there that will continue. I I know what you mean. I actually have family that lives in Oklahoma. My sister lives in a tiny little town that's about the main streets, about six blocks long. And I was there uh, about a year ago, 
and there were like four dispensaries on this one street. And I was like, this is not going to, this is not sustainable <laughs> from a business point of view. But it was also told you a lot about how the fact that despite being very Republican, very conservative, Bible Belt uh, state, it was like, but we want our cannabis. <laughs> so <laughs> That's right. That's amazing. Well, I wanted to um, move on to what Marijuana Moment had reported. They said these states are the most likely to legalize marijuana in 2021. So I believe they had Connecticut, um, New York, Rhode Island, Virginia. So New Mexico, it sounds like they've struggled to enact legal uh, cannabis legalization. And with Arizona just now passing across the border and in Mexico, the Supreme Court mandated an end to cannabis prohibition by April 2021. How, how do you think policy will changes across New Mexico's borders impact the odds of their success? Yeah, I think with all of these states, you, you have what uh, we used to refer to the domino theory when we were talking about uh, countries following the communism. But I think you can use the same theory here with uh, with cannabis is when your neighbors all are all doing it, you basically get in line for the same reason, jobs and tax money. Uh, you've seen this in even in, you know, like in the L.A. area in California, which is obviously a huge market. There were little pockets of cities that resisted and then they just found out that they were losing out the money. So they quickly readjusted. And I think you'll find the same thing with uh, New Mexico. Now, what you know, and then you can't overlook the fact that the, uh, <clears throat> you know, the country of Mexico is also on the verge of. We'll right. see if they do or don't, but uh, so that those are all good signs, and I think there will be increasing pressure. Let's hope there's increasing pressure anyway on the illegal market, which obviously probably still affects places like California and New Mexico. Not probably, it does still affect because it's easier to come across the border. But yeah, John, what are your thoughts? So echoing what Elaine has said, there's definitely something of the um, contagion effect. Um, and, and you see it both at the state level and at the national level. So whether it's you know, people living in states that, that approximate to those that have legalized, looking across and seeing people who look very much like them, but now enjoying legal cannabis, um, the, the, that, that is going to advance um, much more intense interest in legalization. And that's also happening on a national uh, basis. So if you look uh, at the global maps on where legalization has happened and then how quickly the dominoes fall in the in the surrounding uh, countries. Um, we, we think that's something that's going to be, be accelerated uh, uh, in, in 2021 and beyond. I will just say that one of the big takeaways for me coming out of 2020's election um, was the lesson from South Dakota, which, you know, if if which is this idea that if you give everyone a chance to vote, and by and large, the 2020 election is about as close as we've come to, to um, letting anyone who wanted to vote uh, or getting anyone who wanted to vote to vote, um, then you can pass cannabis legalization even in the most conservative parts of this country. And I think for a lot of lawmakers who've shied away from this issue because they've been concerned about pockets of resistance within the conservative communities in their, in their states or, or municipalities, you know, I think the South Dakota outcome in particular um, will, will challenge this idea that, you know, if you can pass it in South Dakota, how can you not be getting it done in uh, particularly the, the states which have been consistently uh, and strongly liberal and have the demogra demographic advantage there? So um, while the, the states you've outlined, Heather, are the ones which are most actively in play in terms of having uh, state leaders who have come out and, and said they intend to do this in 2021, 
um, we actually think that there's a much, much more robust conversation that's happening in places that, that may not yet have formally propositioned a, a uh, legalization measure, but intend to. And, and I'll give um, just a, a personal anecdote that to me is exemplar is a case exemplar of how 2021 has already begun to change minds. Um, between Wednesday afternoon after the Georgia announcement and uh, Thursday morning, I got two emails from people who have known I've been in cannabis for six years and have always kind of looked at me a little askance. You know, they've um, kind of uh, both of them are very, very successful, both as uh, entrepreneurs and as investors. Um, and they, they, they have really never taken the idea that I was in cannabis seriously. Um, both of them sent me lists of cannabis stocks and saying, which ones of these should I invest in? You know, they've done some diligence security list. And now they're like, you know, which of these should we be prioritizing? Coming from these two very different kind of um, uh, people who, who had not been paying attention to this in a serious way, the fact that they'd done the diligence over the break, they'd been paying attention to the Georgia outcome, and now they felt kind of ready to invest, um, I think is indicative of what is happening in the financial markets. Um, and, and what's going to be happening around a lot of kitchen tables in 2021. So we shouldn't underestimate the, the steamroller effect that I think um, uh, this market is facing having come out of what has what I thought was a very, very successful year for the industry in 2020. Yeah, John, you had mentioned, I feel like there's people that maybe may not have taken it seriously at first and now they're interested, but there seems to be a lot of people that have been on the sidelines just waiting to get in. And now is their time. I mean, so it seems like there's going to be a lot of people coming into the market and a lot of money coming into the market. Elaine, what which states are, are you keeping an eye on for 2021? Uh, I really want to keep focusing on the East Coast and see what, you know, what New York, not only, obviously, we kind of think we know where they're going, but how they roll it out, what kind of policies, et cetera, because I think you'll begin to see then those will be blueprints for what will get done or not done in Washington in terms of uh, legalization or at the very least decriminalization as a starter and some form of banking. Uh, and so I think those will, because they tend to have that effect anyway, I think you'll see then what the actual national industry will begin to look like. You're already seeing traces of that, but once you get, you know, once you get closer to sort of de facto national acceptance, or as they like to refer to it, you know, permissibility as opposed to legalized, which mm -hmm. I always think is a funny term for lawyers, but anyway, um, <laughs> it is true. Uh, then we'll, we'll be very interesting to see what kind of companies we come up with and how they operate. And, and frankly, we'll start to see some big winners and some big losers, but it, you know, it's time for that to happen. And, and in amongst that, It'll be interesting to see what role the question of, of social justice plays, if it does. It's not been very successful anywhere yet, really. There have been good intentions, but particularly with the need to run profitable, tight businesses, a lot of people who started out with a, a strong social justice uh, mission to their companies, they've just found that they, you know, to stay alive, they couldn't do it. But one would hope that maybe even with Vice President-elect uh, Kamala Harris as Vice President, that maybe you know at least you get some more widespread uh, expungement of marijuana convictions. So there, there are many fewer people walking. It has to happen at state level, but just an, an atmosphere in which 
a lot of people who are walking around with criminal convictions and therefore hampered in getting jobs might have those expunged. Mm -hmm. And if even if you can't give them an actual stake in the cannabis industry at, uh, right now. Right. John, what do you, what do, what do you anticipate for this coming year? Yeah, I echo that. I think the East Coast is really going to be a definitional market um, for a couple of reasons. One, um, you know, there's going to be a lot of opportunities for, particularly for the multi-state operators, or at least for the highly kind of liquid um, uh, entities that are going to be coming into those markets. So part of, I think there's going to be two things that, that the East Coast is going to be compelling to watch for. One is, um, you know, the role it plays in making the big cannabis companies bigger. Um, and the role it plays in driving further consolidation and, and greater advantage to uh, not only companies that have deep pockets, but also companies that are really effectively managed. Um, you know, the, the patchwork nation has allowed, uh, the patchwork nation of our, of our regulatory environment where you have geofenced states and you know, a lot of mom and pops that have been able to survive in these individual markets. Um, it's been it, it has allowed a lot of smaller operators, less efficient operators to to survive in some cases thrive um, because they've been protected by this this state-based framework. Um, but you know it, it was never going to be possible for that to be the the, the long-term future for this market. Um, at some point you've got to, you know the, the, the economies of scale, the, the impact of consolidation are going to uh, play a greater role and, and we think that that's going to be much, much more visible on the East Coast than it has been in some of the Western markets. Um, one market that I don't think gets talked about very much, but uh, and maybe I'm a little biased because I live there, um, but I do think DC is going to be an important market to pay attention to. Um, you know, cannabis has been legal there for uh, now in six years, um, but the the but the the city has not been able to affect a regulated market. Um, and you know, now that the Democrats have control both of the White House and, and of Congress, um, some of the Republican resistance that has prevented DC from being able to affect a legal market, um, uh, I, I think, are going to go away. Now, it may not necessarily be a large revenue market. But I think the global symbolism of having legal regulated capital, capital, uh, cannabis in the capital of the United States cannot be overstated, um, particularly when you put that in the context of the number of, of embassies, consulates, and other kind of diplomatic posts that are based in the city. So, um, you know, a, a small market financially, uh, but I think a hugely consequential one uh, symbolically um, as, as we look at the next 12 to 18 months. Do you think that the tourism of Washington, D.C. wouldn't kind of increase? I guess tourism is a little down right now, but <laughs> but would that have an effect on the market as far as making it a little bit more, I guess, lucrative? Oh, absolutely. You know, D.C. is only, what, 750,000 people. It's a tiny city. Right. Yeah. But, but when you add in all of the opportunity that is presented by having both Maryland and Virginia as, as immediate neighbors and... Um, having what, something like 5 million people within the greater DC metropolitan area, coupled with the you know, over 10 million who visit the, the city each year um, from, from both domestically and internationally, uh, tourism is going to play a huge, huge role. And so it's not going to be one like uh, to Elaine's example, where you have perhaps dispensaries, you know, four dispensaries on a, in a four block radius or six block radius. Um, but for those who get licensed in DC, it has a prospect of being a very lucrative market for that small number of players. Right. Well, there seems like there's a lot to look forward to. 
the future seems quite bright. Yes, and I think yeah. the financial situation the uh, is particularly encouraging. I think you'll see a lot more heavy-duty money coming into the industry, which will be good. It'll give people who are, you know, producing a good product uh, a much better way to get that to market and uh, run good, solid businesses. Right. Well, we need something optimistic on our horizon right now. <laughs> <We do. laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today, Elaine and John. Thank you as always for your time. It's amazing um, to have you. And thank you to our listeners for joining us at Canna Week. Please be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast. If you have not already, please sign up for a free weekly newsletter at newfrontierdata.com backslash newsletter dash sign up. I am your host, Heather Wickline, and we will see you next time. New Frontier Data provides this podcast for entertainment purposes only. Nothing stated in this podcast should be taken as legal or financial advice. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by the company. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by New Frontier Data employees are those of the employees and do not necessarily reflect the view of the company or any of its officials. If you have any questions about this disclaimer, please contact our legal department.